It is really good to be back, to see many people that I haven't seen, not only in four weeks being away, but uh, almost a year. So welcome back if you're here with us. And it's good to be with our live stream folks as well. Uh, while I was away, I was able to visit two other churches, and uh, one of them was rather large. They had three services, and the other one was, I guess I could say, rather small, maybe 150, 200 people. So it was good to be able to worship in both kinds of experiences, and then to remember that what we're talking about here as Chelton's DNA, that is what we are all about, is actually what I saw in the large church and the small church. So when we've been talking for the last few weeks about what makes us tick, what is our DNA, what is our mission, it's not what is Chelton's as if we are somehow different or better than any other Christian church. Every Christian church has what we have as our worship, nurture, outreach statement. So today, we get to focus on that again. Jin and Shep have been, for the last few weeks, taking each one of those each week and going a little deeper to find out what it means that Chelton exists to worship the triune God and to nurture his family and to reach out with a gospel of hope. That's our mission. That's who we are. And uh, it's been summarized in an easy way. Upward, worship. Inward, caring for each other, both ourselves and one another. And outward, reaching out to people who need the hope of the good news of Jesus. It's pretty easy to remember, isn't it? Kind of flows like up, in, out. And um, our sermon series today is, is uh, back at the middle one. Let's, let's look for a moment at nurture or comfort or caring for each other. Before we do that though, you know, you saw the DNA helix on the way in, you see it on our slides. DNA, when, when you think about it, DNA is something that we're all born with that makes us who we are. And that's what we're trying to use as an analogy. Jesus creates his people, his church, and he kind of hardwires them to be worshipers, nurturers, and disciple makers. But on the other hand, it's not like we're all there, right? Every church, every Christian, in some way, is maybe not very good at worship and good at care and maybe not so good at outreach. And you see how all three of those can come and go in different levels. It's kind of like uh, in your body and my body, I was given DNA for a particular set of teeth but it's up to me to brush them and care for them every day so they achieve their full DNA potential, could I say. And that's what we're trying to do in this series, to say not just who we are, yes, but that's what we need to be as well. So today, 
passage I've chosen is from 2 Corinthians. If you have your copy of Scripture, please turn with me to chapter 1. And I would like to read verses 3 through 7. You're going to see many times the word comfort or encouragement or nurture or care. That, that word is used. It's used actually 10 times in the Greek here, and Paul is going to unpack what it means in three dimensions. He's going to say, first of all, God is a God who by his nature is a God of comfort and nurture. And secondly, he's going to say that his people receive that care. And third, They receive it so they can pass it on to others as well. Here's what Paul writes at the beginning of the letter of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our comfort. Did you hear that word a lot? Comfort. Paul begins by first, instead of talking about us, he talks about God, the source of comfort. He is the one who should be praised and blessed. This is a a benediction to start the letter, not a benediction to conclude a service or a letter. His eyes are on God, and that's what worship is, right? Christians worship. But that's where this passage starts, so before we move on to talking about us. Let's talk about our beautiful God for a moment. Paul calls him the God who is compassion and he is called the God of all comfort. Now where would he get that from? God himself told Moses about himself in these words back in Exodus 34. He said, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's who God is. It's not only something he does when needed, but it it bleeds from him. He moves toward his people who are hurting and suffering and in need of his help. And I guess we could say that his compassion is the bank from which his comfort flows as a resource. Now, in this short paragraph, 
I mentioned earlier, the, the word is used 10 times in the Greek language, nine times in most of our translations. And that just shows you that God is overflowing with this, and, and so should we. And then I got to thinking, well, what, what is this word that our Bibles translate comfort? And it's a hard word to translate just in one word in English. The word is used throughout the New Testament to describe God, to describe what God's people do, and here's some translations. Encouragement, that's a big one. Care, nurture, but it's also used of Jesus. In 1 John 2, Jesus is called our advocate, a legal idea, right? Our defense attorney who comes next to us to help us. Jesus said, when I go away, I'm going to send the, you might say, comforter or helper or counselor. It's the same word, paraclete. So I don't know how to get our arms around this word except to give you an illustration from our pool and our grandkids. I remember one of them, and it's happened with all of them, so, and even with our daughters. So I can remember <clears throat> when they were at a very young age, seeing them look at the pool, and of course, the little ones go in the kiddie pool and eventually go in the steps and, you know, with all sorts of protection to keep them <laughs> afloat. But then there comes that time, right, when I want to be like the big kids. I want to jump in the pool. And they come to the side, and I'm there coaching them on, coaxing them. Come on, jump. <laughs> so it's both delight and fear at the same time, right? And then I say, I'm here. I'll catch you. And this just happened the other day. And suddenly delight turned to more fear, and it didn't work. <laughs> so the only thing that worked was, here, hold my hands, my finger, and jump, and I'll catch you. And she did. Wow. And then she got out and told everybody else what she did. That, what I did to her was, what do you call that? Encouraging her, caring for her, coming alongside her to help her in her time of fear and need. That's all wrapped up in God. He is the God of all comfort. And that's part of his DNA, which becomes part of our DNA as we worship a God who is called, in verse 3, the God of all comfort. But the next thing that Paul says is that we get to experience God's comfort when we need it. Let me read just verses 3 and 4 again. Notice how this flows down. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who 
comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You only need comfort because you're in discomfort, right? If my granddaughter jumped in the pool by herself, she wouldn't have needed me or even wanted me, right? (laughs) Don't get in my way. I can do it myself. And Paul talks about in verse 3 and 4, he comforts us in our troubles. Sufferings. And he uses the word all. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles. You've got them. I've got them. Sickness, depression, financial needs, irritations from other people, COVID, stress, temptations. Right? When, where do I stop? What a year it's been. What a year. And yet, if you go just to this letter and look at what Paul said about his troubles, well, let's do that. I just copied and pasted from one, two, three, four parts of the letter of 2 Corinthians. I'll just read them. We are hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, dishonor, bad report, dying, beaten, sorrowful, poor, having nothing, in prison, flogged, exposed to death again and again, beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked, spent a night and day in the open sea, constantly on the move. I'm only halfway through. In danger from rivers, from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, and in danger from false believers. Gone without sleep, known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food, been cold and naked. Beside this, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And finally, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. You feeling sorry for yourself? (laughs) I was, until I read just this one letter and this long list, and Paul says, troubles, yeah, I know what they are. Comfort, yes, God met me and meets me and will meet me in every one, every one of my troubles. Can I just remind us that as Christians, we are called to suffer. 
A while ago, we had baptisms in this church. And if you remember your own baptism, you know that you were baptized into the death of Jesus. And in the New Testament, that means that we are called to be identified with suffering. Sure, we love to come up. We applaud when people rise from the dead, resurrect, come out of the pool. Nobody applauds when they go down. Death, dying, that's hard. Yes, but that's part. You cannot have resurrection without death. Jesus came to suffer and die. Some of you know it as the J curve, the Jesus curve that goes down first and only up second. We are called to be like Jesus, not in his atoning death, but in sharing the sufferings, in dying to the sin in us, in experiencing the hostility of the world against Jesus. That's what he said. If they hate me, they will hate you too. Get used to it. Last year's troubles revealed our tolerance for suffering, didn't it? For some of us, uh, the meter was pretty small until we reached the entitlement zone. This is enough. I want my life free from trouble. <laughs> Not just a little trouble, come on. I can get rid of a headache with a pill and a bottle. I can get rid of anything that makes me uncomfortable through whatever medication or addiction I might find. And God says, no, Christians own suffering and troubles. We live in them. That's part of who we are and how we should live. Because it's a two-edged sword. It's a two sides of a coin. The suffering brings God closer to us. We would never know God as deep as we do if we hadn't needed God as deep as we did. So if you feel tired and apathetic and wondering where God is, when you're going through trouble, I'll tell you where he is. It's right where Paul said, he is with you, quietly working and wanting to work in your heart to bring his comfort because he is a God of comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. And you might push in a little more and say, well, how does he do that? Well, there's two answers, but the first one is that he speaks to us just like I had to verbally say to my granddaughter, I am here, hold my hands, I will catch you. Those words spoke comfort to her heart. And scripture is filled with words from a comforting God. I've picked two. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 4, um, verses 
12 through 13 say, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I know this is hard to comprehend and understand and even embrace, but when we suffer, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. He is with us. He is closer to us when we suffer than if we didn't suffer. And once you turn your eyes upon Jesus in the middle of your suffering, Ah, you will not look at suffering the same way again. That's why James, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy? <laughs> Is he crazy? No, he says this. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you don't suffer, you're immature. You're only halfway there, if that. Suffering changes you. Now, if you know that, <laughs> just like I, I see some guys work out and some girls, and I rem remember when our daughters ran 5K races and put themselves through all sorts of brutal treatment while I was sitting back thinking, oh, I think I'm too old to do that. <laughs> they didn't say, oh, we enjoy the pain, the sweat. We don't know. It was the goal was to suffer to get the reward. We do that in life, but when it comes to living with God, we seem to forget. So when the suffering comes, we grab the bottle of painkillers and say, God, please, no more. And God says, I'm with you. I am the God of comfort and compassion. I know it doesn't feel good. I am with you. Keep clinging to me. I experienced some of this about eight, nine years ago when we had trouble at our church, serious trouble. And it was Scripture and God by His Spirit speaking to me in my heart saying, don't give up, I'm still here. I am Lord of this church and every church. I wouldn't have known the intimacy of those prayers and the strength that that gave me, I wouldn't be where I am today without those trials that I and others went through at that time. But you see, the third thing is, Paul says the comfort that we receive is not just for ourselves. It isn't. God wants us to share it with others and for some reason, we're still stuck on self 
comfort, right? Our COVID isolation <laughs> kind of forced us into that mode. I know uh, it was easy for my wife and I to just be absorbed in ourselves, in our home, in our family, and not think about what life was like because you weren't supposed to. And then you kind of get used to it. Us four, no more, shut the door type thinking, right? <laughs> now, coming out of the pandemic, many of us need a little push to be reminded that that was not normal and that was not our real DNA as Christians. Being self-absorbed is not the gospel. It's not sustainable and it's not God's intention for his people. Now, I'd like to give you a little illustration of this from the land of Israel. Some of you have been there and some of you know the geography, but if you look at this little country in the Middle East, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey. There are only two major bodies of water. In the north is what we know of the Sea of Galilee, right? You know the stories of Jesus calming the sea. <laughs> well, you see it? That's the Mediterranean Sea on the left. That's a real ocean. The Sea of Galilee is a small lake. It's only about 10 miles wide at its widest point and about 15 miles long at its longest point. But it's there. It's, it's a big body of water, and it's fresh water that is fed from Mount Hermon in the north when the snow melts in the spring and the summer, and underground springs that form the Jordan River to the north of it. And then it fills up and it empties out in this little tributary called the Jordan River also. And that Jordan River makes its way down, 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 and nowadays in the satellite image you don't see it too big. That's because both countries, Israel and Jordan, are siphoning off water for irrigation purposes and drinking purposes. But eventually it ends up in the second major body of water. You know what that's called? The Dead Sea. Now why would it be called the Dead Sea, or in some times in the Bible it's called the Salt Sea. Well, that's because it's 30% salt and minerals compared to the Mediterranean Sea that's only 3%. That means it's slimy, and if you wade into it, as soon as you get half your body in, you start to float. Nothing can sink in the Dead Sea. But it's not called the unsinkable sea, it's called the dead sea because nothing lives in it. Why? Because it doesn't flow out in the south. One way in, no way out. If you take a look at the Sea of Galilee, oh, it's lush, it's green, I've swam in it, I've baptized people in it. There's fishermen there, and it's a beautiful spot. But when you go to the Dead Sea, it's arid, dry, crusty, quiet. 
You say, why are you talking about this? Because I know some Christians that are like the Sea of Galilee. They receive God's comfort. They are fruitful and flourishing, and they give it out to other people. And sadly, I know some other Christians like the Dead Sea. Selfish, self-centered. All they can talk about is themselves and God serving them and their lives, in a sense, are lifeless. They don't flow out to other people. And that's what Paul says at the end here is part of our DNA. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see it? See the dimensions of it? God is the source of it. From him we receive not only to be comforted, but to pass that along to others in need. God wants us to share what we have received with those around us. Now think about this. When we tell our story of God's comforting us, when we tell it to someone else, that brings comfort to them. See, Paul doesn't say, when you find people that are suffering, point them back to God, the primary source. He, I'm, I'm sure he would say that, and he could say that, but he didn't say that. Because your word of God is just as powerful as if they got it from God directly. That's amazing. When we say to someone, God has brought comfort to my life by his promise when I was suffering in this way, what does that do? That's like my little granddaughter watching her siblings jump in with no help. She wants to do it too. Just like Jesus suffered to bring us comfort, so our suffering brings comfort to others. Do you see it? In these death and resurrection moments, we become the hand of God, the voice of God to other people. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. What a privilege. That's why our mission statement says that we exist at Chelton to nurture, comfort, God's family. We are not for ourselves only. So think about it. Think about your difficult times in life and how God met you, brought you encouragement. Just grab one, one of those. Do you know that there is someone in need of that story right now in your circle? And God wants you to be his message of comfort because of your suffering and his comfort to you. That just means that we need to be in each other's lives. 
Come on, we're coming out of isolation. Are you, are you looking for these places and people? Now, for a minute, I, I could talk, right, about our existing groups where you can meet people, like our men's groups and our women's groups and young adults, community groups, our, young, our youth, our children's. These are all, could we call them, uh, standing ministries and programs in the church where you don't feel like you have to jump into the pool all by yourself. If you're, you just come to the group and there's people there. A few weeks ago, I just happened to find out that there was someone in a community group who drove someone else in their community group two hours to meet with their family, dropped that person off, and came back home another two hours. They basically took half a day to help someone to care for them. They didn't say, hey, pastor, could you arrange for a taxi or a shuttle service? Or No, I found out after the fact. That's because Chelton is a church that has people in it who care, who want to give comfort to other people. But let me say, don't depend on the programs or the structure to do it. You know, that's kind of how we tend to think sometimes, especially the bigger church like this. Oh, well, I don't have to participate because we have staff in the church and there's all sorts of structure there. I can just kind of uh, not be as involved as I could be. Well, let's just say that when COVID came, most if not all of our programs here, as we knew it, stopped. Some of them got reformulated on Zoom, right? Others stopped. And they're just now starting to roll out. Hopefully, you're patient enough with us to know that we can't roll out everything all at once, like turning a light switch on, nor can we say, well, that program existed pre-COVID, and therefore, we will resurrect that exactly the same. No, it may not be the same. In fact, it may not even be. <gasps> oh, no, the church is changing. Well, no, the church is not changing. Our DNA is the same. We're caring for people. We're nurturing people. But the way we do it will change, and, it should, and I'll say must change. Otherwise, we just become a tradition that eventually will die. So if you have volunteered for things, new programs, you hear something new and you say, I've never heard of that before. Thank you for joining in in the restart, the recreation of programs. But programs are not the end. The most important thing is the priority of nurture and care. So I'm challenging you this morning. Can you step outside of your self-comfort and think differently about your participation in the body here at Chelton. Look around you. 
maybe use that Church Life app. And if a program scares you, or you say, no, I'm ready, can you find one person that you can text or call on the phone or take out for coffee or lunch or invite over to your home for a meal? Maybe you could be a babysitter for somebody who needs it. Or maybe you could take a senior who's almost all alone and make them part of your family. Maybe you could be an ear to listen. This week, I was catching up on some needs in the church, and I, I called on the phone two people who had lost loved ones. One lost a sister, one lost a mother, and I was able to listen and talk, remind them both of the comfort of the resurrection that's coming. And I even said to my one friend, well, you know, my mom died at the same age your mom died too. And this truth has just helped me through those moments of grief. What was I doing? I was taking the comfort that God gave me three years ago and continues to give me and pouring it out to my brother. Well, that took, what, 10 minutes on the phone? It wasn't hard. But the next time I see him in person, I'm sure we'll be a better meeting than it was before. Let me conclude with a thought that other people have found helpful. What was the first church like? Imagine today you're living 2,000 years ago and you, quote, go to church. Where do you go? Uh, I don't know, uh, the, the church in Jerusalem. Oh, okay, if you're living in Jerusalem. Where was that? Uh, in a building? Well, not a church building. They didn't have church buildings for 300 years till Christianity was legal. And you all know the answer, right? They met in people's homes, in their living rooms, their dens, or whatever, outside. What happened in that service on that day? Oh, well, they had children's programs and the youth. They had an exciting thing. And the... <laughs> oh, you see what I'm going to do now? Ooh, sorry. No, they didn't. Well, I don't think they did. We have no record of it. They met together. What, how many people? 10 people, 20, maybe 50 max in a Roman home? and they live their lives together, worshiping God, caring for each other, being comfort to everybody because they knew everybody and they cared for everybody in that house, and then telling their neighbors as the neighbors watched these people come into their house and watch these people live, and that's how the church grew and multiplied. And if our church loses anything that a house church has, That's okay, because worship and nurture and outreach are the most basic. The way it looks will change, but comforting others in need is eternal. So I challenge you, 
you're standing in the shallow end and there's somebody who wants to be in that pool but they need your hands. Who is that? Father, thank you that you have outstretched hands and the Lord Jesus himself on that cross stretched out his hands for the nails. Thank you that through his death we have new life. Thank you that through his suffering we can receive comfort in our suffering. Lord, thank you for hardwiring us to care for nurturing people, but Lord, may we do it more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.